Uh, my name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. We're glad you're here to worship with us today. Uh, at our church, we're in the book of Judges, which is some very dramatic and um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's wow passages of scripture. And if you have the chance, we'd invite you to read through those with us as we look through them because they're stories that are unfamiliar and probably not ones that you talk about around the dinner table very often. But let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. We praise you for who you are, and we ask you to be with us and speak your truth and communicate your heart and impact ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a little game with me that I brought this morning. It's not actually mine. I borrowed it from a friend. How many of you know what this is? This game is? Jenga. Jenga, exactly right. This is the great big one. We don't have a big one. We have a small one, but I think you know how it works. It if my recollection of the rules is you take something like one hand, or if you're playing with your feet, you can use one foot or two feet, but one hand and you find a nice loose block, you pull it out and remove it and place it in a place that you believe will not bring the entire tower down. That's it. Jenga. Seems fairly simple, but if you've played it before, you know as you go, inevitably the tower gets more and more wobbly, and if it's lopsided to one side, at some point someone makes it wiggle just a little too much, and everything comes crashing down. A lot of fun on a beautiful, cold Michigan spring break, if you need something to do. But we, we enjoy this as a family, and basically what I think the idea, I'm not an engineer, so I'm not exactly sure, but I think it has something to do with how the load is distributed. If it's too much on one side, the whole tower gets wobbly, and the only way to save the day is sort of to transfer the load, to move it to where it's not as wobbly. And then the best thing to do, of course, is have a super, super secure base. Well, as in Jenga, so too in life, today we're going to look at Judges chapter 4 through 5, and we'll see that when your life starts to feel a bit wobbly, when things are out of place, when you're a little bit unsecure, and you feel like the whole thing's going to come crashing down, inevitably what you need to do to save the day is transfer the load and make sure you got a secure base. So the solution that we're looking at today is to transfer the load. We'll tell you how to do that in a little bit, but the way we'll do it is we'll just walk it through Judges chapter 4 and 5, and we'll look at the main character of Barak in this section and what we will see, here's a brief preview of today's sermon, is that Barak has a problem, God has a solution, and then once God gives that solution, if he applies it to his life, everything will work out. And similarly, we also have things that we struggle with, and God will provide a solution for us, and when we apply it to our lives, Things will work out. And by work out, I don't necessarily mean you win the lottery and it's easy breezy. But what I mean is God directs your step through whatever valley you're going through and secures your passage to the other side. So, Judges chapter 4 through 5. And let me also remind you, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember that one of the things we're emphasizing in this book is that Judges points to... Jesus, exactly right. It's hard to get that answer wrong in church. If you ever need a guess, just shout it out. 
So let's try it again just to make sure we're on the same page. Judges points to? There we go. You guys are on it today. Very good. Judges points to Jesus and basically what it shows us, even in this bloody, graphic, violent book, is that God is a gracious and compassionate God. Yet in his grace and in his compassion, because of that, he won't allow his people to go on sinning indiscriminately and indefinitely forever. That would not be gracious. That would not be compassionate. So he's going to stop them. And the way he does so is through his discipline and justice and love. And he stops them from sinning. He disciplines them. And when he does, it gets their attention. And they say, whoa, God, what's going on? Please help. And then God says, yes, I will repent of your sins, and I will send you a deliverer. And we see this process. Here's the redemptive cycle all throughout the book of Judges. And as I said a couple weeks ago, you'll see this in your life too. That basically we seem to be somewhere in the cycle of sin, God's discipline, repentance, deliverance, or peace. Somewhere in our lives, somewhere in our cycle, we can find ourselves right there. And sometimes in multiple, multiple places at once. But let's look at Judges 4 through 5. I've labeled those things in this text on these, screen, on these slides on the screen. So you can see that. So the one is the sin. The two is the discipline. Three is the repentance. Four is the deliver. Five is the peace. So when you see those great big ones or twos, you'll see that pattern popping up again. God is completely and totally consistent. Everything he does is exactly the same. It never changes in the Old Testament and in the New, in your life and in mine. So here's how that works. Judges chapter 4. Now again, this is, this is a long one, but I'm just going to read it because it's crazy good. All right, here we go. Judges chapter 4, it says this. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebdun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. But Barak said to her, Well... If you go with me, then I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. And Deborah said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali, those were the tribes, to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heel, and Deborah went with him. Now, here's this Dickens-esque sort of little side note that will come back later. 
Seems random, but it's not. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hodab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent, that's a key detail, as far away as the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. All right, thanks for that. It's coming back, I promise. Now when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone out to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, again, very similar to what she said earlier, Up, get up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you as your mighty warrior? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. Now, remember that Kenite? But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hezer, and the house of Heber, the king Kenite. Number four. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And Sisera said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. So he, Barak, went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And so on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now I'm jumping to the end of chapter 5 so you can see the last part of the cycle. Verse 31. So may all of your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 50 years. Sin, discipline, repentance, deliverance, and peace. And this time, through one of the most unlikely characters imaginable, this little tent dweller by the name of Jael. Now, how do we get there? Well, if you look at the text, what's actually happening here is that the Bible is focusing in on these women, not so much because it wants to emphasize the role of women, but instead because it's emphasizing the failure of these men, that they were supposed to be leading at this time, and they dropped the ball. So, for example, the character that we're talking about, this guy by the name of Barak, he was supposed to be the judge or the deliverer, the one to conquer the enemy army. He is the guy who God has put in charge to go after it and do his job. 
And yet, what we see instead is that, as is many times the case, when males fail in their duty to lead, and especially spiritually, the female has to summon him and call on him to do his job. And so in verse 6, what you see is Deborah is summoning Barak. She's saying, Barak, come, get up. Where are you? Why aren't you doing your job? The enemy is attacking and you're nowhere to be found. Where are you, Barak? Get up. Clearly, this guy does not have the initiative that God desires for him to have. Furthermore, it also shows a significant amount of insecurity on his part. Twice in the same chapter, he gets the same reassurance. In other words, he's like, "Uh, I'm not so sure, not so sure. And she's like, yes, you are. Go. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Go. Dude, get up. Go. Let me show you those real quick. Verses 6 and 7. You can look at the slides because I condensed it a little bit. Deborah says to Barak, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you? Dude, God commanded you to do this. Go, and I will give him into your hand. God said, go, go. What are you worried about? Do what he says. Obey. Go. Next reassurance. Verse 14. Nearly the same, same words. Deborah says to Barak, get up. The Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? You just got done singing, mighty warrior marches before us. Where do we get all that history, tradition, etc.? From the exodus, from the deliverance, from all these things where we see God going ahead of his people. And as that mighty warrior, he can't be stopped. And, and Deborah is reminding Brock, how many times have you seen this over and over again? Why are you hesitant? Why are you delaying? What's the matter? Do your job. And still, this guy's not ready to go. Another thing she has to, he has to do in order to make sure he's willing to go. He's got the command. He's hesitant. He has no initiative. She, he still ends up manipulating her in order to do what he was supposed to do. He looks over at her and he says, okay, okay, okay. I'll go, but only if you do something for me. I'll go out and do my job, which I was already commanded to do, if you go with me. I want to make sure I have enough support. You know, I've dotted all my I's, crossed all my T's, and I'm not so sure about this command from God until I know that the people around me support me. (laughs) And so here is Brock in verse 8. He says this. He says, hey, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. And as a reader, you're supposed to be Scratching your head at this point, sort of going, Barak, what are you doing, man? You are commander of the Lord's army. You're supposed to be the deliverer. With Deborah, you're supposed to like be bothered by this guy and say, get up. What gives? Why are you holding back? And that really is the question, isn't it? I think if you actually went to Barak and had this conversation, you'd find some really interesting answers. Perhaps some of the same things that you and I have said as well. For example, if you walked up to Brock and said, Brock, why won't you attack this barbarian horde? Why won't you go after the enemy that's oppressing your people? He might answer something like this. Well, I'm a strategic thinker. And as a strategic person, I understand the basic elements of battle. And I can see that they have 900 chariots and we have zero. Therefore, they're in a better position than we are. 
Should I really sacrifice and slaughter all of my troops before their men? We need to think about this a little bit. Slow down. Consider the odds. What's the likelihood of success? What's the likelihood of failure? Let's be logical. Think about this for a minute. 900 chariots made of iron against people who are wielding what? Slings and stones and sticks? Not so much. Then the narrator might fire back and say, well, Brock, look, (laughs) do you believe that the Lord God is with you and can deliver you from the hand of the enemy? And Brock might even say, oh, yes, 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 yes. I believe God 100%. I believe God is more powerful than the Canaanites. I do. I believe that. Well, what's holding you back? Well, I don't think God's going to mess up. But what if I mess up? I mean, I believe in God. I'm just not so sure about myself. That's the issue, isn't it? That confidence piece that we in North America often call self-confidence. Self-confidence is a fool's game. There is no such thing. Self-confidence is an oxymoron. It's completely antithetical and contradictory to what it's trying to accomplish. Do you know what the middle of the word confidence is? Fide, which means faith. And that faith is not in yourself. Brock, you're asking the wrong questions, man. You're looking in the wrong direction. And the reality is, as in Jenga, so too in life. If all of a sudden you're feeling a bit shaky, if you think the foundation is wobbly, then you're leaning on the wrong thing. If you're looking at your chariots, if you're looking at your abilities, if you're looking at your supporters and hoping that they got your back, you're going to fall. That's not enough. You need a strong tower, an immovable rock, a firm foundation, one that will never give. That's where you get real faith and that's where you get real confidence. The problem is Brock is asking the wrong questions. Look, if you're in a spot where you're looking at yourself and you're saying, okay, am I able? Can I do this? Let's go ahead and show that slide real quick. We'll jump ahead one. This is the wrong questions. One more. There we go. Am I able to do this? Do I have enough resources? Then you're asking the wrong questions because you're looking at yourself and therefore you're making yourself the foundation of your confidence. Anytime you feel shaky, anytime you feel insecure, anytime you're like, eh, I'm not so sure about this, there's a good chance you're looking at the wrong thing. Instead, you need to change the questions and ask the right questions. It's not, am I able or do I have enough? But the question is, here's the right question, is it the right thing and can God handle it? What that does then, if we follow that paradigm, if we go in that direction, then what we see is this. We see that it transfers the load from the insufficiency of self to the all-powerful God. It transfers the load from my limited resources to the God of infinite resources. It transfers the load from my from the fluctuating support of others, which ebbs and flows depending on popular opinion, to the unchangeable, eternal, 
indiminishable love of God. It's completely different. You see, Brock, here's your problem. We're going to go back one slide now. Your problem is a lack of confidence. Why? Because you're trusting in yourself. So what do you need to do then? Your solution is you need to transfer the load, not from yourself as the foundation, but instead to God. You know, you read the Psalms. Some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. By transferring the load, Brock, you will then have the confidence that you need to move forward. So the question for us then is, well, how do I transfer the load? You know, because you're kind of like, if you're like me, okay, I believe that. I can't carry the load. God can carry the load. But tell me practically how to move that weight off of myself and put it on him. How do I transfer the load? And again, I jumped ahead a little bit, but the answer is basically by changing the question. When you change the question... What happens is you take the focus off of yourself and you shift it to God. So here's a little challenge for you this week then. Here's one way to do this. Very specific. I recommend taking a little sticky note, take a post-it note somewhere and pop it wherever you are going to see it. Whether it's next to your speedometer, not over your speedometer, next to your speedometer, whether it's on your mirror, whether it's wherever, and you put that sticky note there, and you just write transfer the load. Then, anytime you have a discouraging thought, you're like, oh, I'm getting wrapped into negativity, you ask yourself, okay, what questions am I asking myself right now? What is driving these thoughts? Because I'm obviously getting the wrong answers. So what question should I be asking myself? And you change the question from... Am I capable or do I have support to is God capable and is this the right thing? And if that's the case, then whether it's defeating sin or going into the meeting or going through the process or whatever, you know he can get you through. Because it's not about chariots, it's not about horses, it's about God. So post that note, transfer the load, and when you feel yourself in a bad funk, ask yourself the question, What question am I asking myself right now? Where is my mind going? How do I redirect it and transfer the load? So applying it just a little bit more specifically then. This is Barak. He's got a problem. God gives him a solution. And basically his application would be this. Hey, Barak, is it the right thing to attack these evil invaders And if he's being honest, he'd have to say, yeah, clearly, back in Deuteronomy, Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua commanded us, and this command is still in effect, that we're supposed to go in and conquer the land, drive them out, be a city on the hill for all the world to see, worshiping one God with no pagan influences whatsoever. That's our job. We're to build up the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Am I supposed to go in and attack? Yes. And then you'd say, okay, Brock, good. You know your scriptures. Now, Brock, can God handle this? And if Brock is honest, he's going to say, yes. It doesn't matter how many chariots they have. Pharaoh had tons. God took care of him. He can do it. Okay, Brock, go. Now transfer that to us. Who are we? Are we the children of Israel? No, we're the church. Are we supposed to go into a land and kill people? No, but what are we supposed to do? Build up the kingdom of God. We, like the Old Testament people, also have a covenant. We also have a commission and we also have a command. And what happens here is this. 
Once there's a command, there's no more questions. Write that down. Once there's a command, the questions stop. Once there's a command, the questions stop. If I tell my kids, hey, go brush your teeth, and they're like, uh, Dad, can I play a little more video game time? I'm like, hey, go brush your teeth. Uh, Dad, can I uh, help my little sister? Go brush your teeth. <laughs> Dad, can I do my chores? Go brush your teeth. <laughs> Once there's a command, all the questions stop, and any delay is disobedience. At this point, you know what you're supposed to do, and no wiggle room exists. You're trying to get around it by coming up with good things. It's still not going to work. You're still disobeying, no matter how many good things you put in there. Guess what, church? Same is true for you and for me. You have a command. You have a commission. It's called make disciples, so go do it. Well, I don't know if my resources are enough. What? You need 900 chariots to go out and tell someone about Jesus? No. Well, I don't know if I have the support of, what? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. A mighty warrior goes before you. Who's going to stop you? Any delay is disobedience. You have a command. You have a commission. What is it? Go. Get up. Go. Why are you sitting around waiting? Don't let some prophetess come to you and have to rouse you out of your sleep and say, do what you're already told to do. There's no excuse. Do it. Well, I'm not very good at it, pastor. Neither am I. Here's the secret. Neither am I. And neither was jail. You know who's good at it? Barack. But he didn't get the glory. He was chosen to be captain of the team, but some little girl with a tent peg out did him. Why? Because she's willing. And willingness trumps weakness any day of the week. If you are willing, you win. Not because of you, but because of God. Confidence is fide, it is faith. Not in oneself, but in somebody else. Change the question, transfer the load. Why are you putting it on you? It's got nothing to do with you. This little lady who's married to Heber the Kenite. You couldn't even have told me that name by the start of the service today. You may be able to tell me at the end. But here she is. And what does she have? A mighty battle suit with lots of armor, a shining sword, and a brilliant steed? No. She's got a tent and a peg and a hammer. It'll do. All you need it's what's in your hand. doesn't matter. Just be willing. Tent peg and a hammer. Any others? Slinging a stone. Fishing some loaves. It's usually not a person who's loaded and has everything they want. It's a person who's at just a little bit. It's like, eh? God's like, yeah, watch this. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. And when I do, then you'll know it was me and not you. And you won't even think about taking credit for it. So go get rid of all your other amazing resources and come back when you're empty, and then I'll use you. Go. What are you waiting for? There's no excuse. It's not confidence in self. It's not what you have. It's not who supports you. But it's a command and a commission.
Is it the right thing? <laughs> Absolutely. We've already been told. Can God handle this? Yes, I think so. In fact, he told us the gates of hell can't even prevail against it. Am I good at it? Well, it doesn't really matter. I've already been told what to do. This is what Jesus said. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said, all authority, all power, there's no questions now, it's over, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Church, you may feel very ordinary as I do myself, and like jail, you might even feel that you live out in the middle of nowhere. You could ask yourself the question, how could God use me? And I would say to you the same way he used jail, by being willing. It's not what's in your hand. It's what's in your heart. Do. Just do. Today I want to give you a couple specific applications and we'll bring it back to Jesus again because that's the best way to end. And the specific applications are these. Um, you may be sitting here and you're like, okay, boom, rah, go. What do I do? What do you have in your hand right now? What do you have? Hold it up. Bible, pencil, pen, paper. That's enough. We've actually got a little thing back here at the end of church today. And if you don't have a pencil or a pen, we will give you one. You can write a letter to someone in Uganda and be part of the Great Commission. Today, before you leave, you can do this. <laughs> if you have a sponsor child, by all means, write them a letter. We got it all set up. You just walk back there and do it. If you don't, get a sponsor child. <laughs> Our church has sponsored a bunch of them, and it's awesome. Go for it. You can make a huge impact that's right back there. Number one, sponsor a child. Do that today. You need something next couple of weeks. In two weeks is the National Day of Prayer on a Thursday right on the other side of the courthouse in front of the Methodist Church. It's simple. You don't have to be articulate. You don't even have to pray out loud. You go stand there with your head bowed and be real. And that's it. You don't have to be... You don't even have to be sharing your faith with some unbeliever. You just stand. Anyone in this room who can stand can do that. Lunch break, Thursday, two weeks. There's another chance. Okay, maybe that doesn't work. Hey, in Saturday, May 12th, here at our church, I know you know how to get here. <laughs> at our church, we are going to have the walk for life. Be a part of that. Transfer the load, guys. You have a command. You have a commission. Go. Don't sit back and say, hey, it's not for me. I'm not good at it. Whatever. It's somebody else's. No. This is not for pastors. This is not for preachers. This is not for missionaries. This is for you and for me. Real people. Get up and go. If you're like jail, you can conquer. Not because you're you, but because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Deborah says to Barak, hey, Barak, um, the Lord has commanded you. And in keeping with Scripture, I say gently to you, church, the Lord has commanded you. Has not he given the enemy into your hands? Remember, he broke in and plundered 
the strong man. And through his resurrection, Jesus marches out in victory ahead of us. And what does he command? Follow me. Follow. Just get in line with your captain and march. And that's all you have to do. The command has come. There's no more questions. Confidence comes not from the self, but from him who goes ahead. And when the Lord goes ahead of you, Judges 5 says, the earth trembles, mountains quake, and trees move. Be you Deborah, Barak, David, Gideon, or even little jail. Foundation is not oneself, but our foundation is Christ, the rock. When you're leaning on Him, nothing can knock you down. Father, we thank You for Jesus, our rock. Indeed, the storms of life assail us and the enemy will tell us that uh, we're about to lose and we should give in because our faith is weak. Lord, we realize it's not even about the strength of our faith. It's not our faith. It's you. We thank you for your covenant, for your command, for your commission. And pray, God, that you would cause us to be faithful to it as you are to us. March ahead of us. Show us your power. Bring your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.